0: The Tiger teams, you know, let's talk about them for just a second, hundreds of people from all across the sector and government. So those calls twice a week were great, but it was the communication, it was the teams meeting, it was the leveraging of mm-hmm. hundreds of experts from across the sector between those calls right. that actually yielded the demand signals uh, for, that we would give to government, that yielded the, the resource guide and the, the planning considerations that we would put out there, uh, and that allowed us to do it in real time.
1: This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Today's podcast is the third installment in a series of podcasts on the COVID-19 pandemic, its impacts on the electricity sector, and how the future may change due to our COVID-19 experiences. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom and features my conversation with Scott Aronson, the Vice President of Security and Preparedness at the Edison Electric Institute in Washington. As you'll hear in our conversation, Scott is also the Secretariat to the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, the ESCC, which is a CEO-led group that serves as the principal liaison between the U.S. federal government and the electric power industry on efforts to prepare for, and respond to, national level disasters or threats to critical infrastructure. I'm one of three Canadians that participates in the activities of the ESCC, and I work with Scott at the ESCC and on other North American security related activities. Here is my conversation with Scott, recorded mid-July, 2020. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Glad you were able to join us.
0: Uh, so glad to be here. It's good to talk to you, Francis.
1: So COVID-19, um, you and I have known each other for a number of years, but for the last four months, the only thing that we've been talking about is the coronavirus and COVID-19. A lot of that, uh, those conversations have been at the uh, ESCC table, uh, uh, effectively, but I, I thought maybe as a starting point, if you could talk a little bit about how the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council came to be and what its purpose is.
0: Yeah, happy to, Francis. So uh, the ESCC, it's the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council. It's kind of a mouthful. So from now on, we will just call it ESCC, ESCC. (laughs) right? Uh, But the ESCC, so um, to understand, every uh, critical sector in the United States has a sector coordinating council. And this came from some presidential directives and policy orders uh, back in the late 1990s. So sector coordinating councils have existed, existed in some form or fashion for telecommunications, the nuclear sector, the financial sector. Uh, you know, the water sector, uh, things like um, amusement parks and and places where people uh, gather, right, to improve security and government industry coordination uh, to protect these critical assets. And the thought process there is, uh, you know, we on the private sector side are really good at operating our systems or, or our facilities, but we don't have intelligence gathering capability. We don't have a law enforcement mandate. We don't have standing armies. Uh, and the flip side of that is our government is really good at those things like, you know, gathering intelligence and and uh, uh, and having a law enforcement mandate, but they don't necessarily understand what is responsible or what is required uh, to operate. And so sector coordinating councils are these centers of gravity uh, where we can work collaboratively and kind of develop. Divide and conquer to better protect uh, some uh, critical infrastructure. So, that's sort of the history of coordinating councils generally. The Electricity uh, Sector Coordinating Council, the ESCC, uh, actually uh, you know started as a more uh, sort of junior body. Uh, there were some uh, people from across the sector who worked collaboratively and then worked with government. Uh, but in uh, the about the twenty 20- Oh, what was it about two thousand nine? Actually, so this is a bit of a history lesson, um, mm-hmm. in, and I don't know if you know this, Francis. Um, in two thousand nine, uh, an organization called NIAC. So I'm sorry, we're gonna have lots of uh, lots yeah. of uh, uh, acronyms today. Yeah. But NIAC is the National Infrastructure Advisory Council, uh-huh. uh, and its job, again, critical infrastructure. of it is owned and operated by the private sector, but the president needs to make decisions about how to protect that, right? Because it's critical to national security, it's critical to economic security, it's critical to the life, health, and safety of my fellow citizens. So NIAC is this group that informs the Executive Office of the President. And NIAC, in about 2009, uh, did a report on nuclear sector resilience. And they looked at uh, a lot of different uh, opportunities for improvement. And the very first recommendation in that report uh, was that there needs to be more of a senior executive dialogue between okay. senior government officials and the private sector. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where uh, uh, the ESCC, being a more junior body in like the late 90s into about the early two, 2010s, Evolved from that to we need to bring CEOs to the table, and right. so uh, in around 2011, 2012, we started to make uh, the ESCC a senior executive, a CEO-led body. Uh, and really, the yeah, you know, look, and I know I'm talking to a CEO right now, so I'm I'm going to be uh, a little pejorative for a second. The CEOs don't do the work, but <laughs> yeah. but yeah, they're a draw to other senior executives. They create. Uh, they set priorities. They create accountability. They provide resources, right? And so having CEO leadership, while they're not the ones doing the work of security, uh, are the ones who are really leading and making sure that we as a sector uh, make security and preparedness a pr- the priority that it needs to be. Uh, and uh, again, the, the last uh, seven, eight years of the ESCC being a CEO-led body, uh, we've really made a lot of progress.
1: So is, um, is it different with the other coordinating uh, councils? Because that's the thing that, that's struck me since I've been involved in the, in the ESEC, the fact that it is all CEOs sitting around the table.
0: So that is the unique nature of the electricity sector. We are the only sector coordinating council that has brought CEOs together and CEOs from all segments of the sector. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's fascinating. Uh, so because it is a North American grid um, mm-hmm. we, we've, working with uh, the Canadian Electricity Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, down here in the States, we've got cooperatively-owned systems, we've got municipally-owned systems, we've got right. the independent power generators, we've got the independent system operators and the regional transmission operators, the ISOs, RCOs. So we, we've brought that whole ecosystem of the uh, industry together at the CEO level. And part of that is... Look, this isn't a knock on telecommunications or finance or water. Mm -hmm. Um, Our sector is not as competitive as others. We operate one big machine, the energy grid of North America. And so we have found that common cause to work collaboratively. And uh, we view the security, preparedness, uh, uh, contingency planning, continuity of operations, uh, resilience of this shared infrastructure uh, as uh, a, a as a mandate, mm-hmm. and the best way to you know to um, follow through on that mandate, the best way to to be prepared is to work at the highest levels of industry and government. Uh, and again, the ESCC is that uh, that center of gravity where that happens.
1: When did the uh, ESCC uh, really get seized uh, with COVID nineteen?
0: So. We I was, I was asked March. this
1: question because, you know, I, I can I can go back to the exact day when we uh, closed down our main workplace, yes. but, uh, and then reflecting back, okay, well, the first meeting I had was three weeks before that. So I know what the date in February, but when did, yeah, when did the ESCC begin uh, being seized with COVID-19?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great question, right? Because I think we all kind of remember the mid-March timeframe where yeah. things got bad, but really we were paying attention to it a solid month before that. And mm-hmm. I, I can even go back to... Um, you know, we had an ESCC in-person meeting toward the end of January, uh, and uh, we were paying attention to some uh, virus that was being transmitted out of China. We were starting to see, you know, worries of pandemic, but people weren't quite there yet. So it was sort of a just get ready to get ready. Uh, I recall that time, meeting. Right? Yeah,
1: it was in it was in Washington. Yeah.
0: It was in Washington in, in, yep. in late January. And, and so, you know, nobody was doing... Um, anything at a macro level at that point, but companies were starting to dust off their pandemic plans. Right. Uh, and people were starting to pay attention to this thing that was coming out of, uh, out of Asia. Um, I, I would say that when it really started, uh, the ESCC, you know, again, it's a, the, the key letter in there is the first C. It's a coordinating council, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, uh, we started coordinating at that senior executive level, uh, in late February. So it wasn't quite, you know, uh, EEI, you know, the organization I work for, uh, we stopped going into the office. I believe the exact date was March 12th. Uh, right. but it was a yeah. solid two weeks before that, uh, that the ESCC started to have phone calls, mm-hmm. uh, with senior government officials, uh, from the departments of energy and homeland security. Uh, and, uh. Uh, we were starting to organize, and and I know you're going to ask about this, so I want to sort of presage it with uh, one of the things that the ESCC leadership, uh, the, the co-chairs of the Sector Coordinating Council, uh, said to me as as the secretary of, of the organization uh, is we need to stand up some teams to be able to look over the horizon at potential challenges <laughs> with a pandemic. Because you know what? Even though, and I'm sure this is true in in Canada as well, so much of our industry's continuity planning is actually rooted in pandemic. And that's Mm -hmm. because pandemics Mm -hmm. present an interesting thought exercise, right, until they actually happen. But, okay, you don't have these people. You don't have these facilities. You might not have this supply chain. What are you going to do about it? But the details of a pandemic matter. And in this case, it is a highly contagious uh, in uh, asymptomatic patients for up to 10 days. Uh, it, can be, uh, uh, it can be mitigated by washing your hands. Uh, so, those details kind of dictate the things that you're going to do to prepare. But, you know, unless you were operating an electric system in the late 19 teens, uh, you don't have experience. You don't have experience right, Actual experience with yeah. a pandemic. Yeah. So, what are we going to do to learn from each other in real time mm-hmm. as this pandemic reaches North American shores?
1: So that was that was the establishment of the tiger teams. They were intended to look over the horizon.
0: That, that's exactly right. We uh, you know we, we like our we like our terms. Uh, we like our terms <laughs> of art. So, so we we have tiger teams and EEI has Spocks. Uh, so we have Spocks and tigers. Uh, the Spocks are the single points Point of contact. contact. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and that's just the lesson that we learned uh, from um, uh, storm response is. Mm-hmm there are a lot of different departments within a big company that have a responsibility for storm response. We wanted that incident commander, that single point of contact, that senior official, that senior uh, uh, executive who's got visibility into all of their uh, different business units and can ask the right questions or make the right decisions in real time. Uh, So that's uh, how EEI has been working with its uh, just, you know, discreetly with its members uh, through the SPOCs. Uh, But then we also built out the tiger teams. And so, the Tiger teams uh, started, I'm going to see if I can remember, because they've evolved, but I think it was five Tiger teams mm-hmm. uh, to begin with. And the yep. five Tiger teams were um, control center continuity, uh, generation facility continuity, mm-hmm. uh, mutual assistance preparation, supply chain, and operations in quarantined or uh, restricted environments. Right. And so you kind of break down those five, but we can do them real quick. Uh, The first two control center and generation facility continuity, what it sounds like those are the nerve centers of uh, the operations we those are the highest skilled most highly skilled, hard to replace uh, employees, you know, of of an electric company, we got to keep them healthy and safe. And so ideas like do we sequester them. Mm-hmm. Do we uh, decentralize operations to minimize the impact of a potentially uh, of, of the inevitable positive cases? Uh, what kinds of cleaning protocols? What kinds of what do we need from government? And this goes to that industry government. You know, We need personal protective equipment. We need hygiene supplies. So th- that's the kind of stuff that that Tiger team, those two Tiger teams looked at. Right. Um, operations in uh, you know quarantined or restricted environments that's that early on New York New York City was a hot spot mm-hmm. how do we move between and among how do we work in a city how, if people are if, if our workforce is customer facing how do you safely go into the community into a building into a home uh, what are the what are the protocols that we're going to need to keep those employees safe uh, how, what do we need from government to be able to move? people into New York to go do, uh, you know, to go fix something, but then they're going to come back to a place that isn't uh, a hot spot. Right. How do we do that as safely as possible? Yep. Yep. Um, supply chain, supply chain is what it sounds like, right? Supply chain is, you know, and I've said this a lot recently, we have a just in time supply chain and that's mm-hmm. true of the entire economy. Mm-hmm. Just in time supply chains can go one of two directions, right? Uh, it can go, uh, it, it can go, you don't get what you need just in time and you're hosed, uh, or you can uh, get more than you need in the surplus. I can deal with a surplus of yep. stuff, uh, but uh, but, but, uh, but if we're going to you know, rely on personal protective equipment, if we're going to rely on cleaning supplies, if we're going to need the all the way up to the commodities that we use to, to generate electricity, and then the chemicals and, and everything else in between that we need in in, in a, a short period of time, if it's a two-month pandemic, we're probably okay mm-hmm. if it's a two-year pandemic supply chains you know react differently so we've kept this supply chain organization pulsing the electric companies across North America we've kept the supply chain organization the tiger team uh, pulsing the suppliers uh, and just looking over the horizon mm-hmm. before a problem becomes a you know emergency uh, and so so far so good on the supply chain. The last one is mutual assistance, and, yeah. and, and that, that, again, kind of what it speaks to. Look, I, I've got to give thanks to, to you, uh, Francis, and to CEA and to all of your membership. Uh, you guys do a great job whenever we have storms, and I hope we you know, take, take care of you similarly. But you know, how do we move uh, people into theater to do a mutual assistance response? <laughs> what kind of protocols do we need there? How do we keep them safe? How do we, uh, you know, how do we decentralize those operations? How do we do contact tracing uh, when you've got people from all over North America descending on, you know, a a storm response? And so we've had, we we built protocols. They're known as the the COVID protocols uh, for Mm -hmm. mutual assistance. They're effective, Mm -hmm. uh, but they're, we're going to continue to grow on them. And the last thing I'll say, everything that has come out of the, uh, the, the, the Tiger teams has been memorialized in uh, something called the ESCC resource guide. Yep. It is in version nine right now. It started as a six page pamphlet. It's 125 pages of shared wisdom. Mm-hmm. And what we're calling it is recommended practices and planning considerations. Mm-hmm. It is not best practices because we don't know what the best practices are, because we're all living this in real time. Right. We will do after actions and figure out what the best practices were, but for right now, we're just doing the best we can to share information, share recommended practices, give some planning considerations, and then and then work as a community to iterate on those and make them better over time.
1: Before we keep digging into this, I, I did want to step back for a second and ask you about kind of your c- career path, the vice president of the Edison Electric Institute, uh, your uh, secretary to the ESCC, when you were a kid on the playground, was this your dream? This is what you wanted to do when you were going to grow up?
0: So, you know, nobody grows up. So let me explain. I don't think anybody grows up and, and wants to. I, I actually started at EEI as a lobbyist. Uh, and so I don't uh-huh. think anybody grows up saying I want to be an electric, uh, an electric company lo- lobbyist. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it turns out um, my background kind of led me to this organically. Uh, you know, maybe somebody might joke that I was falling upward. But uh, so I grew up in New Jersey. Um and uh, you know, no matter what people think about New Jersey, I think most people you know you know they land at Newark and they drive into new york city and and all they see is um, all of the uh, you know oil refineries and and infrastructure that's up there. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in you know central Jersey, South Jersey, It was actually horse country, believe it or not, but I used to love driving up to New York, because I loved seeing the infrastructure. Hmm. That's what makes society go. And I just thought that was the neatest thing, right? Like all that stuff, all those right. refineries, all those wires, all those uh, pipes, all those facilities. Uh, that's what made the world tick. And I just thought that was neat. And so after uh, I, I went out to uh, Colorado to go to school, I uh, I started working on political campaigns. I worked for a guy uh, in Florida uh, who was running for the US Senate. And uh, he one. And at that point, it's like, you know what, it's, it's time to settle down a little bit. I'm done traveling the country being a campaign hack. And so I uh, went to, uh, I, I followed him up to DC, I, I worked in his Senate office, uh, uh, worked in a, a house office, a US House of Representatives office after that. Uh, and uh, you know, then I decided to go uh, what's called the K Street downtown uh, to mm-hmm. be a lobbyist. And so I was an electric company lobbyist. And, and uh, here's, here's the fun part of this story to get you to where I am today. Um, on my third day, uh, I started in early April of 2009. Your third uh, my, day
1: as a, as a K Street lobbyist? As a K Street
0: lobbyist at EEI. Uh, you know, so my boss at the time tells me, All right, you're going to work on emerging technology issues. You're going to work on some, um, smart grid uh, uh, issues, telecommunications issues, uh, and this cybersecurity thing. <laughs> okay you know I, I i had some experience in uh, in uh, homeland security policy and things like that I, was like, I got this i can do it uh third day on the job wall street journal has an article uh front page uh the entire eastern seaboard is going to go into a blackout and electric companies aren't doing anything about it <laughs> and so what went from this you know kind of throwaway issue hey you can work on cybersecurity? uh to um uh to like the thing that everybody cared about now it is you know the industry did focus on cybersecurity and physical Mm -hmm. security before that Wall Street Journal article. I want to be very clear about that. But no matter what you think of lobbyists, um, we don't just go to policymakers with a sack of money and say, you know, hey, you've got to pass this legislation. You have to have a good story to tell and you have to be protecting infrastructure. And and so um, my job went from actually lobbying on the issues and kind of doing public policy advocacy to actually helping tell the story and have, uh, helping to build out uh, some, of the, uh, uh, some of the infrastructure, for lack of a better word, that the industry was using. And, and I, t- I told you about that 2009 NIAC report, mm-hmm. dusted that off the shelf. And, and mm-hmm. actually, we with uh, APPA, the American Public Power Association, and uh, NRECA, the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, we wrote a letter to President Obama saying, this recommendation is a really good idea. We do need more senior executives doing this, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, and my 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 sort of perspective on life is it is better to be at the table than on the menu. Uh, and so <laughs> we so we built the table uh, as those three major trade associations and then our respective memberships uh, to then have the ESCC be CEO led, and and the rest is history. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how I fell upward so to speak. Wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> hey let's let's talk a little bit about that that table the the, the SCC table itself. One of the things that struck me um, um, and on our first I mean it was weekly calls. Well actually at the beginning we were we were twice a week, right?
0: Mm-hmm. We yeah. sure were.
1: Yeah, two evenings a week we'd we'd, we'd be getting on the calls, uh, and then it was once a week, and and uh, now the cadence has slowed somewhat after eh, four months. But what uh, what always struck me uh, on those calls was the the level of senior engagement, not just from the CEOs, and they all dialed in, um, you know, twice a week. Um, but we were uh, also uh, using having an an opportunity to talk to um, senior government uh, folks, uh, DHS, DOE, FERC. They were all showing up, and they were all being part of that that conversation. I wonder uh, the degree to which so many senior people were engaged helped move things along quickly. Because let's let's face it, Scott. I mean, we were able to move. Blindingly fast on some of those issues, going from issue spotting, uh, some ca- in some cases issue spotting at the beginning of the phone call, um, <laughs> to uh, to uh, having a solution that that then the government would commit to by the end of the call, an hour later. How did you see that that dynamic and the speed with which things worked? So.
0: First of all, it's remarkable, right? I I completely agree that that to be able to be that nimble as a sector um, Mm -hmm. and and in our partnerships, but it goes to, look, I I joked earlier about, you know, the CEOs don't do the work, but but, right, they do set priorities and they do create accountability and they, they are uh, you know, so important to making this a priority for their their organizations and so in addition to the CEOs being on the call as you said There's a lot of other senior executives who yeah. would hear what the bosses were talking about right. uh, Would either provide their own subject matter expertise or just sort of salute and say yes, that's that's what we're going to work on and so uh, the CEOs said, build the Tiger Teams. We built the Tiger Teams. So the mm-hmm. Tiger Teams sort of issue spotted and uh, identified needs that we had. And we would bring those back to the CEOs and the CEOs would uh, com- would communicate that to the government. And uh, government senior officials from the Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security, the White House, uh, the, our regulators, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services would hear this and be able to respond and react. And so, uh, yeah, it was that, 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 force of nature of having Mm -hmm. all of these senior people who do have decision-making authority voting with their feet, like you said, being on these calls for an hour at a time, twice a week at least, Mm -hmm. uh, and then everything that happened in between, it was a priority, it was adequately resourced, we knew what our goals were, uh, and we were able to leverage um, the Tiger teams, you know, let's talk about them for just a second. The, hundreds of people from all across the sector and government. So those calls twice a week were great, but it was the, the, the communication, it was the, the team's meeting, it was the leveraging of mm-hmm. hundreds of experts from across the sector between those calls right. that actually yielded the, the demand signals uh, for, that we would give to government, that yielded the, the resource guide and the, the planning considerations that we would put out there, uh, and that allowed us to do it in real time. And again, that, that lack of competitiveness in the sector, but instead working with common cause, that I think that's why we were able to be so effective so quickly. Uh, in, in, and the last thing I'll say about this is, it, it we we have experience in this. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. not with pandemics, but mm-hmm. you know, since uh, the twenty seventeen storm season in particular, uh, we've had a lot of industry government. We've had a lot of reason to work together, industry and government. Twenty seventeen was Harvey, Irma, Maria, and Nate. Uh, Maria never really ended because we're still trying to, you know, help and fix Puerto Rico. Yeah. Uh, the next year we had uh, Michael and Dorian, if I remember correctly, and Michael was nasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had cyber threats in between. We've had physical attacks on infrastructure. Industry and government work really closely uh, right. to make sure that this most critical infrastructure is uh, is protected. So. It was just a matter of taking that all-hazards approach and applying it to pandemic uh, planning and pa- pandemic response, but but doing it in real time was 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 sort of um, extraordinary.
1: So almost muscle memory, right? We've we've, yeah. we've now gotten so used to when bad things happen, collaborating, getting together, and, and trying to address it uh, collectively. The That's other right. thing that that struck me was uh, the. A degree to which uh, I was able to to get uh, Canadians to to participate in some of this as well, uh, like right down to the tiger teams. You know, we had we had Canadians that were participating in some of the, the tiger team work, um, uh, and the resource guide was is was and still is something that 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 we're using. You know, uh, some of our folks had, had contributed to, but uh, I mean, it is it is definitely uh, now a foundational document. What was the, um, the biggest surprise for you? It's still ongoing, right? I mean, here we are. We're in mid-July. Uh, we've kind of uh, plateaued in Canada in terms of new cases. Uh, new cases are continuing to, to rise in um, uh, quite a few states in the U.S. So we're not out of this yet. But up until now, so far, from the work that we've been doing through ESCC, and also you know the, the work that you've been doing directly uh, through EI and, and uh, the EI membership, what's what's was the biggest surprise to you, uh, and what was the biggest kind of learning out of all of this?
0: Oof, so many things on learning, but uh, mm. so the surprise—I'll I'll give you will give you a, you know a positive uh, surprise, and, and then I'll give you sort of uh, something that we have to be better at. Um, the positive surprise has been. Uh, how effective the industry has been at uh remaining operational mm-hmm. uh, you, you didn't skip a beat right. uh the, the 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 workers the workforce uh who is most directly impacted by this. Understands their role as critical infrastructure uh, providers. They understand that they are essential to the life, health, and safety of their communities, and and so they are effectively first responders, and they have acted as such. and mm-hmm. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised by that. This is, uh, you know, I've seen it time and again. You know, especially after storms and and, right. and other emergencies. Yeah. You know, th- th- this industry and its workforce really do comport themselves um, extraordinarily. So, but but I've just been surprised at how. No real impact to operations throughout the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some things, like you said, uh, we're, we're still in it. Um, I, I think the surprise has been the duration and uh, that uh, crisis fatigue is a real thing. Yeah. You know, I talked a second ago about, uh, hurricanes, you know, Harvey, Irma, Maria, and Nate. Uh, I remember the August, September, early October timeframe of 2017. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. were on day 45 or so of a battle rhythm of responses to these, each one of them, historic hurricanes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I was like, wow, you know, being able to do it for 45 days, this is exhausting, but you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Um, we're on day 130 something at this point. I'm not even, I've lost count. I was, I was counting for a while there. Um, and, uh, uh, Crisis fatigue is real and, uh, you know, kind of making people continue to keep to make this uh, a priority, uh, to take it seriously, to uh, understand uh, that we're not going back to normal, whatever Mm -hmm. that is, um, anytime soon. And so we have to keep this uh, urgency and cadence up. Longer and, and that's going to be a challenge. Uh, but uh, uh, so far so good. Again, you know, no impact operations. I'll knock on wood as I say that. Uh, but something we have to remain vigilant on.
1: Is this going to change? Uh, I mean, certainly over the over the short to medium term, until there's a vaccine, it's going to change the way we 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 operate. But over the longer term, do you think do you think this is going to change the way we operate as a as a sector overall? Um, and is it going to change the way kind of we operate at the association? The industry government collaboration
0: level? I don't see how it doesn't. um, Right. I I think, you know, look, on the one hand, um, our infrastructure is kind of by definition. diffuse and ubiquitous. And yep. so th- there's the ability to, you know, a lot of the workers have been saying, you know, look, my, my work is inherently socially distanced because mm-hmm. we don't need people coming up close to you know, high voltage lines uh, while we're doing, uh, you know, while we're doing uh, maintenance work and things like that. So I think on some level, but, and even, uh, you know, control centers, you know, I, I think there are ways to minimize uh, physical proximity, right. uh, and, and that we can we can kind of continue to operate not as usual, but fairly effectively without uh, without you know with whole, without wholesale changes. Um, I think on a from a business perspective uh, and from a trade association perspective, how does it not? Mm-hmm. Right, we we we've we have all gotten a crash course as I talked to you over Zoom. Uh, yes. We've all gotten a crash yeah. course in remote uh, in remote working. Uh, there are some. Uh, efficiencies and benefits to it. Um, And uh, I think we've found that we can uh, do some of the work that we've done without travel, without Mm -hmm. putting ourselves in physical proximity to each other. Uh, What that looks like long-term, you know, who knows because we're still in the thick of this. But uh, yeah, I I think kind of think of it two ways is one, of course, it's going to change because society has changed. There's a before and an after to the pandemic. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, with respect to actually operating our infrastructure, there will be, changes. But I think generally speaking, um, you know, we, we are finding ways to operate uh, uh, just the way that we always did uh, with, with uh, you know, a couple little you know, minor uh, tweaks here and there to, to keep people safe.
1: When we reflect upon our experiences of COVID-19, it's definitely going to change uh, how we structure our emergency preparedness exercises in the future. The scenarios for future grid X exercises are definitely going to be impacted by this, right?
0: Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. We've been, um, we have been planning Uh, exercises around cyber attacks, because that was the new and interesting thing. I I think, you know, uh, uh, pandemics are, I I was uh, talking to some, uh, to to some senior uh, incident commander types, and we were talking about um, lessons out of this pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So we're in the process of doing an interim action report, which is going to help to bring some of those lessons uh, to the fore. Uh, But we're also looking at what does the next pandemic look like? And again, mm-hmm. I gotta God forbid and knock on wood as I say that too, uh, but the idea is, I, I said it earlier that the details of a pandemic matter. Well, what if we had a more highly contagious uh, virus? What mm-hmm. if it didn't respond to simple hand cleaning? Uh, what, if it, uh, uh, what if it had a higher mortality rate? What, what if it were fully airborne? we've got to start thinking about those contingencies now based on those details. So right. again, we were lucky, and that's a hard word to say right now, but we were lucky that this industry had done a lot of pandemic planning mm-hmm. in the late 90s and early 2000s in preparation for SARS and MERS and avian flu and you know, H1N1 and all yeah. those that never did make it to North American shores. Uh, but so now, now we've got to sort of think through, okay, we've learned a lot about how to operate in a pandemic, what if the details were different? How do we make sure that our the, 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 the service we provide, which is so critical mm-hmm. to all of our you know, safety and health, uh, what if we couldn't do it because of blank? And, and that's exactly right, we're gonna have to bake these into scenario plans uh, for the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah, yeah. and we were, but let's face it, we were fortunate um, that we didn't have a really bad storm season uh, like a 2017 happening at exactly the same time, although we're not <laughs> out of the storm season yet. Uh, But so far, we've been fortunate, right? I mean, it, it, it so far hasn't been that bad. And we've been able to manage from a mutual assistance standpoint.
0: Well, that, you're exactly right. So far, so good. But uh, we're going into the uh, height of, of storm season. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, uh, it's technically uh, it's, it's June to end of November, but uh, really the lion's share of storms hit uh, the United States in uh, the late August to mid-October uh, time frame. So we're looking at that. We've got wildfires uh, out in the West. I know yeah. you all deal with that, too, yep. uh, up in Canada. and so. Uh, yeah you're, you're exactly right we, we've got to be ready for the storm season uh, part of why we had that mutual assistance tiger team mm-hmm. and we've had an opportunity to use the protocols that they developed and kind of iterate on them right to decentralizing uh, the staging areas uh, yeah. doing the onboarding of the mutual assistance resources the people that come uh, to help uh, doing them virtually so instead of doing these you know having instead of doing these know tailgates uh, where you know, somebody will stand up on a tailgate yep. and talk to yep. 500 of their closest friends with a bullhorn yeah. not going to do that now let's use technology yeah. um you know ppe how much ppe do we have and what are we going to need for a mutual assistance response what are the uh what are the rules of engagement going to be uh to keep uh, pods of people close together so that we minimize the impact of the inevitable positive cases in a mutual assistance response so that's that's all of the different ways that we're building that out um we've practiced it a little bit through uh, exercises and dry runs. We used it a little bit with some storms, uh, some tornadoes that hit uh, in the April timeframe. Uh, but uh, you know, nothing is like a hurricane. Nothing is like a wildfire. Uh, and so uh, we are gonna have to be as ready as possible when uh, those do happen.
1: Yeah, and the additional, the additional uh, the wrinkle for us in Canada is getting crews back and forth across the Canada-US border at a time when the border is essentially closed except to essential, uh, essential traffic. Uh, and we, we did uh, successfully do so in the spring storms. But it's mm-hmm. something, of course, that, that we're always keeping our eye on in addition to uh, you know all of the other issues that, that came up through that Tiger team.
0: Yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank, first of, you, first of all, you and all of your membership for being a part of the Tiger teams and uh, for everything that you do always uh, when you come down uh, for, uh, uh, whether it's uh, winter storms in the Northeast and upper Midwest, or or, or even uh, you've, you all have come down for hurricanes before. Uh, in particular, I remember a, a large contingency came down for Hurricane Irma, which was just absolutely devastating. Uh, And we are better at responding because of that partnership uh, and uh, being able to solve for those border crossing issues because of the relationships with our respective governments. Even if the border is completely shut down, your people coming to us or our people going up to help you, we are mission essential. You have to let us through. And uh, there's ways to make that happen. And you know, we'll do it. We'll do it again. I know we will. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, the, the cruise, the, 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 uh, the travel goes both ways. Uh, I was, I was living in Montreal in 1998 during the, the great ice storm. And there was a, you know, a, a large contingent uh, coming up from the United States to help out during that event. Listen, Scott, one of the things that uh, I, I ask uh, everybody that uh, comes on the podcast, I- I'm always interested if uh, people um, either have a book that they're currently reading or that they've recently read that they would recommend, and and, and if so, why? So what would that book be for you? So, uh, you know... It's a tough
0: one to answer. So I'll tell you what I'm reading right now. And I mm-hmm. love it. So uh, I'll, I'll do that because otherwise I'd be talking for the next 20 minutes about a bunch of different books about cybersecurity or, or, <laughs> uh, or, or, or all the disaster books that I really, really like. I'm, I'm a, yeah, I, I, I like apocalyptic uh, stuff, which I guess makes sense given the, the, the job I'm in. Uh, but um, uh, so I'm going to actually I'm gonna tell you two. Uh, so I just finished reading one uh, called Station Eleven. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is, a sci- it is a science fiction book about a pandemic. But it bounces back and forth between the pandemic that happens around now okay. and 20 years later, uh, which is, you know, how do you, uh, you know, what, what has become of society when only about 0.1% of humans are left. Uh, and so it sounds like a tough book to read right now, but it is so beautifully written. And the characters, the way that they bounce back and forth between you know, what they were pre pandemic and what they are afterward i think is just stark and beautiful uh what i'm reading right now and i just i want to recommend it to people because it's so good is Mm -hmm. um it's a book called it's called open uh it's uh the andre agassi autobiography oh okay it is terrific look i've read plenty of uh, i'm I'm a sports nut uh not tech not usually tennis but uh uh, love sports i've read a bunch of sports uh your biographies and autobiographies and they are never well written Mm -hmm. this thing he he is an excellent writer. I'm sure huh. he had some help, but it's just, again, beautifully written. You think that he loves tennis, but he doesn't. And that's what's so amazing about it is he just keeps doing it because it's what's expected of him. And so anyway, I, uh, another kind of meandering answer for you, but two great books, Station Eleven, uh, I can't remember the author's name, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, Open uh, okay. by Andre Agassi. Yeah, terrific books. So,
1: Awesome. Hey, Scott, thanks very much for, for taking the time to join the podcast.
0: You know, Francis, I, I've always enjoyed talking to you and I'm uh, glad to be able to share our conversation with a broader audience. Thanks again for having me. Thank a real you privilege.
1: again. And, and for one, for once the conversation isn't happening at GridSecCon or at, or at some other conference that you and I are participating in, but, but by Zoom. But the next time, hopefully we'll be able to have a face-to-face conversation. Thanks very right. much.
0: Looking forward to it. Thanks again, Francis.
1: Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor, and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. Coming up will be additional conversations on the challenges of electricity in Canada's North, as well as more in our series of podcasts on lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, we invite you to continue the Electricity Conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.